Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. There's a new book out this winter. It's called The Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. It's by Candace Taylor, who is an author, photographer, and cultural cultural documentarian. And Taylor is in St. Louis. She'll be doing a reading tomorrow at Left Bank Books. And first today, she joins us by phone to discuss her new book. So, Candace, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start with a really simple question. What was the Green Book? The Green Book was a travel guide. It was published for black people during the Jim Crow era started in 1936 and was published through 1967 by a black postal worker named Victor Green. And so he really was the green behind this book. What led him to um, to launch this? He was an incredible man. He was based in Harlem, and the Harlem race riots actually were happening in 1935 when he was creating the Green Book. And Harlem was not the liberal integrated bastion that you know we've come to think that it is or even the celebration of black culture it was still very segregated in harlem and so he really just was creating a tool that he could use in his community and the first green book was only uh, focused in harlem and upstate new york and then it grew very quickly within a few years it was in every state east of the mississippi so clearly there was a need for it. Now, you reprint an ad from an early edition of the Green Book, and it says, just what you have been looking for. Now we can travel without embarrassment. And before reading your book, I got to admit, I'd never thought about how it wasn't just the cruelty of the places that refused to serve black travelers. It was also about the uncertainty of of not knowing which did and, and which didn't. How did that play out for, say, people who were taking road trips? It was very difficult. This was an incredibly challenging time to travel. And, you know, normally it's the South that gets the bad rap by saying, oh, you know, they were there were segregation signs and the South tends to be the bad guy in this story. But really the North and the West were equally problematic and even more insidious in their segregation because it was impossible to know. At least the South did have signs. Mm-hmm. stating where you, if you were colored, you knew where you were supposed to be. Um, but mind you, also in the north and the west, there were sundown towns throughout the country. And sundown towns were all white towns. They were all white on purpose. And they were largely in the north and the west. And there were thousands of them. And they could be, you cross a county line, and it would just say right there a sign saying, inward, don't let the sun set on you here. So if you were just a black family taking a road trip, and you're believing, you know, you're leaving the South and you're thinking, oh, it's going to be all, it's going to be much easier up North. That wasn't the case. It was, it was very challenging and, um, and dangerous. I thought it was interesting. You did go a bit um, deep into these sundown towns. And you said um, the top five states in the U.S. for having these, both Missouri and Illinois, were among them. That's yeah. something that, that we don't talk about here much in Missouri. Do you think it, it had to do something with um, being on the edge of the South but not being in the South where they felt like they had to just enforce racist norms here? Or do you think there was something else to it? Well, I think there's always, you know, the Missouri in particular was interesting because it was the only state in all of the editions of the Green Book where Victor Green actually had a full-page ad saying, Missouri, if you're from Missouri, read this, hmm. um, because he was calling out. The Ozarks were very special, um, very dangerous, and a special form of racism um, was happening in this state. I don't, 
you know, I'm sure more Missourians know more about this than I do, but from what I can tell, Victor Green called out Missouri and said, we really do need to find more safe places for black folks. For instance, there was a um, fantastic caverns in Springfield, Missouri. It's a popular Route 66 travel destination. It still is. It's a drive-through cave. It's really fun and kitschy. But back in the day, in, um, when the Green Book was published, uh, this was run by the Ku Klux Klan. They literally you, were in the, the tourism business with these caverns. Right. And there's a photograph in the book of them having a you know, meeting in this cavern. They had cross burnings in this cavern. And this was a popular tourist site. So these were the kind of minefields that black people might just run into. You just never knew. Um, and Missouri had over 200 sundown towns. Hmm. And what- um, Mississippi only had 13. So if that gives you a you know an indication of, of the difference. One of the other sundown towns that you mention in your book is Sullivan, Missouri. Now, that's just 70 miles west of St. Louis. And you say it's rumored to still be a sundown town today. What did you learn about Sullivan when you were researching this book? Well, there was an article, I believe it was published by The Guardian UK, that did more research into this and interviewed um, uh, a young man who had been growing up in Sullivan. And he it's in the book as well, so you can read about his testimony of his experience as a black man uh, being in Sullivan today. Um, some downtowns, you know, are there's another one, Harrison, Arkansas, was a, believed to be another modern-day, quote-unquote, sundown town. But it's not in the sense that, obviously, they, the sundown town sign is no longer there. Mm-hmm. Um, there are black people who live in these towns, but it's very clear that the the alt-right and the um, hate groups so like the Ku Klux Klan and uh, others are have a stronghold, a strong force within that community, and um, and so it's it's very real. It's still very much a problem in our society. There are others as well, um, but yeah, the the one in Missouri was uh, was Sullivan. Ferguson used to be a sundown town, ironically. Yeah, uh, I was fascinated mm-hmm. to learn that. Mm-hmm. Now, so more in the book about that. <laughs> now, another um, topic of local interest that you do tackle in this book, you have a whole chapter devoted to Route 66. And you write that black people don't have the nostalgia for this route that white people have. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I did dedicate a whole chapter to that because it's something that, and I wouldn't, wouldn't say every single black person, but in general, um, it's a very different experience when you're just hitting the road without any real knowledge about what you're facing. And the reality of Route 66 that traveled from Chicago to Los Angeles, um, out of the 89 counties, nearly half of them were sundown towns. Hmm. So right off the bat, that's very that's a, a scary situation. And oftentimes, by the time black travelers got to Albuquerque, because they had passed the Ozarks and hadn't, and uh, Illinois had almost 400 sundown towns. Missouri had over 200 sundown towns. And you're driving south. By the time you got to Oklahoma and the Texas panhandle, there were many black people having crazy car accidents. And the NAACP official said to the sheriff, well, it's because they couldn't find a place to stay. Hmm. Out of the 100 um, hotels that lined Route 66 in Albuquerque, only six accepted black people. So if you didn't have a travel guide, if you didn't have the green book or something alerting you to where you could stay, 
um, you were in trouble, and a lot of times you were exhausted, and people were getting into car accidents. So it was, it was definitely a different kind of experience. We're talking to author Candace Taylor. She's a photographer as well and also a cultural documentarian. Her new book is The Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. Now, Candace, one of the more personal stories that's sort of a through line through this book has to do with your stepfather, Ron Burford. And you say it wasn't until you were researching this book that he opened up about what it was like growing up in the Jim Crow era in the South. What were some of the experiences that he ended up talking to you about? Yeah, that was an incredible um, surprise and blessing in this whole process. Um, I'd known my stepfather, Ron, since I was 12, and he grew up in the Jim Crow South in Memphis, Tennessee, as a dark-skinned black man. And he told me a story one day, because I was asking him about the chauffeur's hat, because I'd read about this in the archives, and I'd read about the stories that black men with nicer cars would have a chauffeur's hat as a ruse to explain why they may have had a nicer car to the sheriff, because no one would believe it was theirs, and they'd get harassed. And I asked Ron one day, I said, is this true? And the story tumbles out of his mouth. And he tells me when he was at the age of seven, it happened to him, and his father, you know, pretended not to know his wife and said, you know, she's the maid, and I'm driving them home, and this isn't my car, sheriff. And Mm. that hat was always hanging there in the back seat, and Ron never knew what that was for until that day. Um, but there were other stories, too. And, and once he died, Ron died the week I started writing the book. And um, and it was shocking and, and, and horrible um, for me. But in that moment, I just would sit there and cry, grieving, writing the stories that he told me on the road. Um, because we would talk a lot when I was driving. And I realized that all of those stories were a touchstone in nearly every chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. So it became, it was kind of a happy accident that had he not died, I probably wouldn't have had not Ron be this narrative thread in the book. But because he did, you really look back and you think about people differently and you look at their lives differently. And and it became a really great opportunity to, to share his story. So... So, yes, he's in the book as well. And your affection for him comes through so clearly. But I'm wondering how these experiences um, must have shaped him and and just changed his perspective on life, having lived through that. Well, I think what's fascinating to me is that I've done this kind of work for over 20 years, and I've been interviewing people about race and class and culture and gender. And it is hard to get, especially people of that generation, to open up. I mean, you get a lot of platitudes, and I've interviewed people who use the Green Book, and they say, oh, yes, it was this way, and this is what we had to do. But Ron's stories, again, because I had known him all my life, the fact that I just learned this level of his experience um, in the last two years of his life was shocking to me, but also very revealing in that there was a level of trauma and there was um, kind of protective measures that he used and Mm -hmm. these survival mechanisms that were always in place for him that suddenly made sense to me. I used to be so frustrated that he would only drive at night if he was taking a road trip. Hmm. And I thought, you're, you're putting, you're, you're putting your, your life and others in danger because you're driving in the middle of the night. Why, you know, he would say, oh, it's traffic. But it wasn't until I started this book that I realized he's doing it so he can be an invisible man, a black man, and not be harassed hmm. by the police. And give, I mean, Ron actually ended up being in law enforcement. So 
it's not that he didn't like the police. He was actually in law enforcement, but he realized the country that we lived in, and he had protective measures and practices that he used. And all of that became much clearer to me after he passed and after he shared these stories with me. Hmm. Now, one of the other things I, I have to say I really liked about this book was how you didn't just talk about the Green Book in the historic context. You also connect it with the present day. And one part of that is you scouted more than 3,600 sites that were listed in, in these historic editions of the Green Book. You said that fewer than 5% are still operating. Now, I know a lot of years have passed, but that seems like a really no, low number. Did that Did that surprise you once you started digging into it? Well, you know, actually that number, um, I have, I've scouted more than 5,000 sites at this point because I think that number 3,600 was when I first started writing the book, so I've increased it. Um, but no, I'm not surprised that there's so few left, only because um, when you look at businesses today, there's it, you're lucky if you stay in business for five years mm-hmm. um, after you open. So the fact that these were mostly black-owned businesses and some of them are still operating today, I think it's just something to celebrate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing that we have them. I've estimated about 80% of the buildings are gone. So we do actually have some of these structures that house these businesses, and I'm protecting those as well. I got a grant from the National Park Service to nominate some of these properties for the National Register. Um, but yes, we are featuring these, you know, there's a site toward the end of the book that shows you the ones that are still operating and they close by the year. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully people do get out and actually patronize some of these businesses. Some of them are fabulous. Um, Dookie Chase is in New Orleans, for instance, some of the best Creole food you, you'll ever have. Um, so it's a real, it's a gift, I think. And it's also an it's opportunity for us to reexamine this history, what black travel meant, but also what segregation meant in this country, and the resilience um, and entrepreneurship of black folks is, is celebrated in these spaces. So it's a real gift that we still have them. You also write, um, and this is a quote, when I talk about the Green Book, some people say, thank God we don't need that anymore. And yes, it's true that we made progress, but some of the communities that were once safe havens for black people are now just as dangerous as the sundown towns blacks were avoiding uh, during the second wave of the Great Migration. As I drove through neighborhoods where the Green Book sites once thrived, I could see the indelible scar that mass incarceration had left on these communities. Um, it sounds like you're saying that, yeah, there there were these problems back in the day. Now we have these these other problems, and they're affecting these very same communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're in another civil rights crisis, and it's it, it. Thank God I did actually go to these communities to see this, because had I stayed in my office at Harvard, I had a fellowship at Harvard with with Henry Louis Gates Jr. while I was doing this research, and had I just stayed there and not, I, it would have been a very different book. I would have written a very different book. Um, but because I was in the South Light of Chicago, where 53 people had been shot that weekend in the neighborhood I was in, that was real. You know, when I'm on the phone with Ron, and he's he gave me a stun gun and supplied me with mace and a knife, and he taught me how to use them because, like I said, he was in law enforcement. He was worried about my safety because he knew some of these communities. Um, but the book also really looks at why and how these communities have been shaped over time. And it's largely by government policies that have created this environment that, you know, sometimes is just 
mired in violence and um, and is the reason why they are so unsafe. So I think that uh, my goal was to complicate this issue and really show you from all angles why this is happening, but also to examine that we are in, a, like I said, a civil rights crisis of our time, the fact that nearly one in three black young men is in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in 100 years we're going to look back on this time and be just as horrified at that as we are now when we look back on the Jim Crow laws and say, how could how could that have happened in this country? Um, and I think that we will continue to repeat these same issues around race and access and, and social mobility and equality until we recognize that as much as we want to aspire to be this country that's free and fair for Americans, and once we realize that that's not necessarily has been the case, and it's not really true today either, um, we have to really face that reality. And I think when we do, then we can have a deeper conversation and hold our representatives accountable for some of these policies and laws that were made. I mean, there's redlining, there's urban renewal. There are all these things that happened um, over those years before and since the Green Book has, you know, was in publication and has ceased publication. Law and order, stop and frisk. Mm-hmm. These are things that happened. So the book really addresses all those levels um, because I think it's important to, if we want to celebrate how great the Green Book was, we have to recognize that there was a serious situation that made it so popular and it was able to thrive under these conditions that we have not fixed those problems. Well, Candace Taylor, um, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. And Ken Dacey is the author of The Overground Railroad, The Green Book, and The Roots of Black Travel in America. And her reading is at Left Bank Books. That's tomorrow night at 7 p.m., and it's free and open to the public. And if you get this book, she actually highlights uh, three sites in St. Louis. It's, It's worth checking out. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.